So Virgil uh, has had that experience. He's um, working now all the time for, for the Red Cross. Really, the Red Cross is a very interesting example of a, of a polity, of an entity which has a global character. It's rooted in different countries, and yet it has a personality that transcends any particular country. And uh, it's uh, one of the original NGOs, non-governmental organizations. It's very closely connected with the Geneva Conventions, which are very much um, at issue. The fact that the United States seems to be, the U.S. government seems to be violating the Geneva Conventions on a consistent basis. When it comes to uh, determining how our prisoners being treated, uh, it's the Red Cross that does the inspections. So there are many um, reasons that the Red Cross forms a very um, appropriate uh, venue uh, as we try to look at globalization in, in, in different ways. Apparently, uh, the whole uh, image of the Red Cross, of course, the cross is not a neutral symbol. The cross is a Christian symbol. Uh, there's a, a red crescent for those countries that don't except the, the cross as a symbol. And now there's a, a, a new development. It's going to be a crystal. So what is, what is going to be the logo or the symbol of what we now, what we now call the Red Cross? So uh, Virgil, if, uh, if that's fair enough, I'll, I'll try to uh, give a little sense of uh, where we're headed with this. But I'm uh, all eyes and ears to uh, hear how you approach this. Oh, yeah, you need to be mic now. What's that uh, interference I hear? Not me, I'm muted. Maybe this is a better... widen it a little bit um, uh, into a bit of a personal uh, story, personal philosophy, too. Um, I'm not an academic. Uh, I was a student here at the UofL. I did a degree in political science um, and uh, hated it um, with the idea of becoming a lawyer one day, and I snapped out of that by the end of my degree um, and decided instead to go to journalism school. Um, I had a very silly reason for going. Other than uh, liking writing and wanting to see the world, I thought, um, who was it, Oliver Stone's uh, uh, JFK was just about the time when I was finishing my first degree. 
And there's some point when Kevin Costner's character points at the camera and says, what are you going to do? And uh, so for some reason that, that got to me. And I decided that uh, I wanted my life to be about something bigger than myself. And uh, so uh, I uh, applied to journalism school, went to Concordia in Montreal, uh, with an idea that I would somehow, through journalism, be able to, um, uh, to in some way, make the world a, a better place, um, which for a number of years I thought was a fairly naive, uh, I got to believe that that was fairly naive of me and I really didn't like journalism. Um, in fact, I hated newspaper journalism. Um, and got away from it as quick as I could. Uh, but then uh, later, uh, through the years, I did um, come to a point where the the roads that I had taken, including journalism, uh, did uh, make a significant difference. Uh, in, in one case in, in particular that I'm going to tell you about, how much time do I have, Tony? When's the class end? Lots of time. time. All right. Well, uh, because I'm not an academic, um, journalism school is a professional school. It's not a, a real master's program. It's a graduate diploma. Um, uh, I'm not an academic, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. Um, so I'm not going to give you a lot of uh, a lot of perhaps useful information for an exam or anything. Uh, but I do hope that what I speak with you about will will make a difference in your lives. Um, and in a sense, that's kind of why uh, you're here anyway. Um, in terms of developing your personality as much as anything else. How many of you, uh, what, what citizenships do you all have here? Uh, Canadians, what else? What other citizenships are there here? Chinese? New Zealand? Okay. All right. Um, in a sense, this is a little bit, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about being a global citizen. Um, when I finished uh, graduate school, um, I went to, uh, by some, some different routes, I ended up in Mexico as an illegal alien. Um, I crossed the border as a tourist. I had uh, 400 bucks in my boot. I went there Christmas Day. I had a fight with my dad and just got on a bus and went to Mexico. Um, and uh, so with 400 bucks, I landed in Mexico City and uh, started rooting around for a way to become a freelance journalist to make my mark on the world, et cetera, et cetera, and found out really quickly that uh, with the, the peso was at the time through you a dollar, you know, my money was out in no time and uh, was getting nowhere with that. So I did what a lot of people do when they go overseas. I started teaching English, uh, and I did so as an illegal alien. I did it undocumented. I became a worker in Mexico uh, without a permit, Without a visa, but because I was white and and uh, you know uh, from the north, etc., uh, there was no real problem with that. You know, I just borrowed somebody else's number and um, I worked there for a number of years. And then uh, I uh, uh, after, I had this idea early on of a company um, to to start that would supplement my income so that I could be a freelance journalist, which is really what I wanted to do—a writer. And so I had this idea of a company that would market Canada as um, as a place to go study for people, for language studies, uh, for university studies, technical schools, art schools, etc., whatever it may be. And nobody was doing anything like this at the time. And I just happened to arrive in Mexico just before New Year's Eve 1993. 
I don't know if any, do any of you know what happened on New Year's Day, uh, 1994? Anyone besides Tony? Does anybody, uh, does anybody know anything about the uh, Zapatistas? Rebels in the South. In Chapel. Subcommand Dante Marcos. Yeah, we smoke a pipe or something. Yeah, yeah. That guy, uh, for a class in globalization studies, that's somebody that you should be very familiar with. Uh, those uh, indigenous peoples fired the first shot, really, in the uh, in a kind of revolution against the trend of globalization. The first uh, of January, 1994, was supposed to be the first day of the North American Free Trade Agreement when that was to be implemented. While well, the, the beginning steps, it was, it was supposed to unfold over years and decades. But symbolically, January 1st of 1994 was supposed to be that day. And that was what uh, everyone was, a lot of people, and especially the media, were caught up in this kind of neoliberal dream of the New Mexico and, and this miracle that was going to happen with the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, of which uh, Canada, the Canadian government, uh, and you can't blame one party or another because they were, uh, well, that the two main parties were well in on it. Um, the, Canada was, of course, a signatory to this uh, North American Free Trade Agreement. So on that day, January 1st, uh, 1994, uh, the Zapatistas, who are named after Emiliano Zapata, Zapata who was a revolutionary, um, early in the uh, in the 20th century in 20th century Mexico, and uh, he was uh, responsible for a lot of changes that that took place to ameliorate some of the effects of colonization, the colonization by the Spaniards in Mexico. And part of that was redistribution of of lands back to the people who originally owned them, back to the indigenous peoples of Mexico. Mexico, by the way, is an indigenous country. Most people don't realize that. 80% of Mexicans are, are of indigenous blood. They're Native Americans. Uh, another 10% of Mexicans are pure Native Americans. And then there's 10% of Mexicans that for 500 years have kept themselves completely separate from the rest of their country persons. And um, they're pure white Castellano Spanish. So 90% of Mexico is basically uh, Native American. And their, their lands were taken away from them by the Spaniards under the, uh, under the, the cross, the, the Catholic cross, um, and with that excuse that, the, you know, that, that, that Mexico or America was being saved for, uh, they were, you know, they were killing them to save them in a sense, and their lands were taken from them. So, Zapata was, uh, was, uh, as a revolutionary figure, um, he was responsible for uh, in a sense, bringing uh, a, a lot of changes to Mexico constitutionally, in fact, um, that tried to uh, reestablish, a, a, in, in a sense, a kind of a just society in Mexico. Now, it, you know, there were many failures and successes along the way, but the, the uh, Zapatistas uh, named themselves after him, and their uh, grievance was with uh, the, in this, this whole movement, the NASA uh, uh, the um, not just the NAFTA, but at that time the neoliberalization of Mexico, to prepare it for the NAFTA uh, included changing a lot of things in Mexico that had been trying to help the poor of Mexico. One of them was 
changing the very article in the Constitution that, that set up this redistribution of land to people so that they could be private farmers in a kind of communal sense, communal lands as well. Uh, and these communal lands that, in, that towns would farm together, the Constitution was changed by the neoliberal president of Mexico, uh, Salinas Gortari, um, who, Gortari Salinas, who, uh, who changed a lot before you couldn't sell that land. That land remained communal, um, and if you had that private piece of land, you couldn't sell it. It, it remained part of the family and the community. And that was a way of protecting uh, the, that redistribution uh, so that the land didn't end up immediately back into the hands of the, of the very people who had taken away in the first place. Uh, and, and so there was a kind of a... a, 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 a with private farm, Mexico was, of course, full of small farms. People making a living off of their one plot of land, having a, 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 kind, of, uh, a kind of autonomy themselves, selling their products at what they could get as a fair price in markets. And uh, then the NAFTA came along in order to change that. Um, the, and, and the reason they needed to change that was to get the, the land back out of the hands of the poor who had it and into the hands of, of large um, agro, agro businesses. Um, there were a number of other changes that I'll tell you about, uh, about soon. Um, but um, so I arrived in Mexico uh, right at the, just a couple of days before those first shots were fired. And on January 1st, the Zapatistas actually took over a number of towns in Chiapas as a kind of protest and to say, we're here, you've forgotten about us. You've driven right by us with your fast track to this NASA and haven't considered uh, our concerns and haven't considered uh, us as persons. Um, the, the only consideration in this NASA has been money, capital, the free movement of money. And, and I'll talk about that in, in, in momentarily too. So, uh, so as soon after I arrived in Mexico, I had this idea. Yeah, I'll start a company because a number of people I met said, oh, you're Canadian. Well, uh, you know, uh, my cousin wants to go to Canada to study or I wanted to, etc. but we can't find any information because the Canadian embassy was completely commercially focused. It only dealt with big businesses. And so if you were a Mexican who just wanted to go to Canada to study, you couldn't find anything there. So I had this idea, we'll start a private embassy that will just, um, you know, help people get to Canada to study. So I started that company illegally in Mexico and, uh, and found a, another couple of partners to help me out with it. And, uh, and I think about the next year, I left Mexico uh, and very easily, uh, in three days, um, I got a... Uh, uh, a businessman's visa to come back to Mexico uh, with, as, uh, as an entrepreneur under the name of my company. And the only thing I needed to do that was to have, of course, you know, a comp- you know, name of a company, uh, partnership established, and um, I needed to have five, to show that I had $5,000 in the bank, which we didn't. We just borrowed it from someone for two days, put it in the bank, got a bank statement for $5,000, and then gave the person back his money. And, uh, and so we had the bank statement there, and, and through, the, through the new rules of the, of the North American Free Trade Agreement, I was allowed to go back and work in Mexico for a period up to five years, and if after five years I decided I want to become a citizen, I was welcome to do that. Um, if you're a Mexican, 
uh, worker, uh, you'll never uh, be able to go in. If you're a working man, working woman in Mexico, you'll never be able to go to the embassy and say in three days or in three years or in 30 years, say, I want to go to the United States, I want to go to Canada and work, find my trade, do what I can do, uh, and, and be given a visa to do that. It's, it's the chances of that, according to immigration specialists, is zero. Okay? I mean, one, two might get through by some other means, but it's, it's pretty much zero. And so I'm going to talk about, a little bit about that. Why, why is that? That, that, uh, you have, in a sense, two classes of people. Um, but I'm going to finish a little bit on my bio, uh, to, to let you know who I am and, and, and where I'm coming from. Um, I, uh, I started this company in three years. It, uh, it went national in Mexico, a number of different cities, an office in Montreal, an office in Vancouver. Uh, we were asked for um, uh, franchises in, in, in other parts of the world, in Vietnam, in Germany, in Guatemala. And at that time, I got very ill, had to leave the country and sell my interest in, in the company. I can show you on the Internet here. It still exists. And it's... Uh, we were also, sorry, we were also the first internet company in Mexico, uh, the first company to use the internet. Am I still mic here? Yeah. You're giving me kind of weird look here. Now I see what that site is. I was confused by it when I first saw it. I'll just pull it up. Go ahead. All right. Um, so uh, I, got, I, I got sick uh, with a mystery illness. It took me a year to start recovering. Uh, I came back here to Canada to do that and had to sell my, my interest in a company that I started. The company I'm referring to is Class Canadian Language and Academic Studies Service, classeducation.com, that's it. Should be it. Uh, anyway, um, there. Uh, this is a, this is a, uh, you know, this was a, this is an international company in a sense. Um, so when I had to sell my interest in the company, uh, when I got back on my feet, then I got back to work and I became uh, a Spanish interpreter in hospitals in Texas, in Houston, Texas. Forty percent of people who use the hospitals there is public hospitals, uh, and they only use the emergency rooms because there is no public health care there. Um, they, uh, 40% of them speak only Spanish, no, no English whatsoever. So I was a Spanish interpreter there for a time, um, trying to, uh, help these people create a kind of bridge between them and the, and the healthcare professionals. Most of them were, uh, people who had come, like I had gone to Mexico, people who come, uh, without documents to the United States. But it was a completely different, um, story for them in terms of, uh, their access. I was, uh, you know, working with uh, in, in embassies and, and dealing uh, and going to dinner parties and so forth. And these people that I was dealing with on a daily basis were, were uh, becoming injured in horrific workplace accidents because they had no rights as workers. Uh, there, they had no, there were no safety uh, rules that pertained to them because they didn't exist. Uh, and most, uh, most work Manual work being done in, in the southern United States uh, uh, is being done by uh, people who don't exist. Uh, and you drive by on roads, the road crews will be one white uh, uh, overseer or sometimes not even that, 
and everyone else is an undocumented migrant from uh, from Mexico or Central America, and they are people who who legally don't exist. They don't have any rights whatsoever. They're not afforded any 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 rights in 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 the society at large. In the healthcare system, there's a lot of winking that goes on and turning and 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 basically turning a blind eye uh, because of those 40% of people coming into the hospital. Uh, almost none of them are, are legal uh, migrants. So I, I became a, a, a hospital interpreter. Uh, I did then went back to Central America and did some work uh, for uh, after Hurricane Mitch uh, with some uh, relief organization from the UK that was actually an umbrella organization of 12 different uh, um, NGOs, including the British Red Cross. Through that, I eventually... Uh, I was invited by the Canadian Red Cross to become an overseas delegate. And uh, an overseas delegate is somebody who is on a, goes overseas on a contract basis, basically. Uh, I have to be ready to go on a 24-hour notice uh, anywhere in the world and um, perform, you know, do, do, do work there for periods from between a couple of weeks up to two years. Um, my job uh, with, the, uh, with the Red Cross and I work for the International Federation Red Cross and Red Crescent Society, which is uh, it's the biggest organization in the world. And I am the media, uh, one of the, the top media persons for that organization. So I'm a flack. And Tony is right. It's, it's all about warfare, and that's what I do. Every day I get up and I go to war, basically, when I'm out there. And um, I guess, in a sense... Uh, I have to, I believe in what, what we're doing as an, as an organization. My job is to go out there and create a perception of that. It's also to go out and do advocacy work. That is to show the rest of the world what's going on. You know, what, where, are the, where are the needs um, and how are we trying to meet those needs and how should we, you know, as a, as a global community, try to, to meet those needs. Um, I have to, in some sense, uh, cover up where we're not doing so well. Uh, that would make me a bit of a spin doctor, and I have to show where we are doing well. Um, but basically, when I, when I do my job, I definitely, when I get up in the morning, I look at it as, as kind of going, going to war um, and fighting for that kind of terrain, that media terrain, trying to figure out ways to, to, to gain territory in, in a kind of a global media terrain and, and gain kind of territorial space in that imagination, the global imagination. That's my main job. I do other things in the Red Cross um, because as a delegate, when you're out there, you have to be ready to step into any situation, whether it be first aid situations or setting up relief camps, etc. If there's no one else to do it and you're the media guy, then you do it. And in a sense, I'm, I'm like an officer and the volunteers that are national in that country um, are more like the foot soldiers who actually do the heavy lifting. Um, in my work, I'm on the front lines of globalization. Um, I see the worst of it. Um, and that may, that may mean in, uh, in, in a sense of, of, of warfare that's caused by uh, a lot of poverty and, and, other, and, and greed. Um, but also in a kind of economic warfare I run into in my work, on a daily basis, I see the casualties of this economic warfare that's going on right now, uh, and which we're calling globalization in a sense. So, I'm here to talk to you about what I 
see what I have seen um, a little bit uh, on the front lines of globalization. Uh, and then, how do I deal with it? Uh, and how it might relate to what you're doing, to doing here, in a sense. Um, I want to back up, though, and tell you a story about something that happened to me while I was still a student here at the University of Lethbridge. I hope I'm on track here. Absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, when I was a student here, it was close to my, I think it was uh, close to my last semester, uh, I went back home to Texas. I grew up in Texas. I was born in Alberta, and when I finished school in Texas, I said, I want to be a Canadian, so I came here. This is the first place across the border, so this is where I went to school. That's the story of how I got to Lethbridge. Um, <laughs> it's stupid. Uh, but uh, a happy decision in the long run. Um, but I grew up in Texas, and so when I was going to university, I would go back home uh, in, the, uh, in the summers to, to work and, you know, to see my family and so forth. Uh, one night, my brother and a girlfriend and I were driving in, uh, we lived way out in the country, and we live in a part of Texas that is, in a sense, kind of like the back porch of Texas. It's like, from, from our back porch, in fact, it's hills, and it goes like, you know, 100, 200 miles um, to Mexico, and there's nothing, nothing in between there but trees and snakes and rocks and undoc undocumented migrants and cows. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, anyway, we're, we're, we're driving in this one night, and it was just before I had to come up here to finish my last semester, like a few weeks before, and uh, we were driving into town, and um, they, I, it was night, and I saw ahead of us, the road was really winding, I saw ahead of us, like garbage scattered on, on, on the highway. It's a really narrow kind of highway, trees on the sides of it, and a, you know, a mountain on that side, and going down to the river there. So uh, we're driving, like, and I saw this garbage. And then just before we got to it, it was on the other side of the oncoming lane, I saw what I thought was a body. Like just, just like that, it was like something that, you know, that's a human, it's a person. And so I, you know, I yelled at my brother to stop the car, right? And so just, and just then, he, so he stopped the car and said, that, that's a body. And just then, an, another car came around the corner, come in the other direction. So we flashed our lights and honked the horn and tried to get the car to stop. And the car kept coming. And um, and we looked, you know, looked back behind us and, def and definitely saw a body being hit by the car. Prone there with garbage all around. Um, this body was hit by this car. So this person stopped and, um, and we jumped out and ran over and there was a Mexican uh, man there, um, very bloodied, uh, and um, we uh, we did first aid, and you know we called in the ambulance and so forth. While this guy was on the ground, he was trying to communicate. You know, he was in, he was in terrible pain, and he was trying to communicate with me. Um, and, and I had kind of taken charge of the you know the, of the accident site in a sense, and was over. He was trying to communicate with me, and to my Shame. I didn't know any Spanish. I was 23 years old, maybe at the time. I'd grown up in Texas, basically a bicultural society, but but secretly so. And I didn't know any Spanish. And so this guy is trying to talk to me. And and, and as far as I know, he's telling me his last words because we didn't know if this guy's going to live or die. 
And so he's trying to communicate, and the only thing I could get from him was, you know, the town that he was from. And and then, you know, a, a, you know an ambulance came, a nur- one of the nurses spoke a little bit of Spanish and told us, this guy was says he was hit by a truck, uh, you know, big, a big you know, truck came by, hit him, he kept going. And, um, and then, you know, and then we, and we came along short, shortly after. And uh, so then we, uh, when we left, we went later to the hospital to check on him, uh, and he had been disappeared. The authorities had come. The man had no skin on the back, all, all the back of his back. Um, his head had, was, was, had severe damage to his head, probably a skull fracture. And um, when the, even just from the other car going over his body, because the undercarriage of the car basically scraped him along the road. And so within two, we went to, so we went to the movie, and then after the movie we went to the hospital, and they said, he's been released. Uh, and, uh, and basically he had been picked up by migration authorities or law, 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 law enforcement and uh, had been taken wherever. Uh, and that was the last that we could find out about about this guy. But it bugged me. It bugged me tremendously that I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know the guy's language when I should have, known something of it. And it really bugged me that he'd been disappeared like that. But more than anything, what just got at me was, here's a, here's a person. You know, he's carrying his belongings in, in a couple of plastic bags, uh, and, you know, has just probably walked for seven days, walked uh, into this country, and simply to get a little bit of work so he can send a little bit of money home. And somebody driving along hit him and left him like a dog. They didn't even stop to check on him. They left him like a dog like garbage on that road and kept and just kept feeding along. And um and in some in some way that that experience uh affected me in, in so that later in life that you know that migrant question and, and that man on that road kept coming back to me and in some in some way steered me to do to to go the the, the ways that I went and to do what I did. Remembering, remembering that guy and trying to, trying to in some way make up for that. But, you know, I was thinking about this and trying to think about uh, what to say to you today, and I was thinking, in some sense, what happened there, what I witnessed, is the same thing that I witnessed when I do my job with the Red Cross all the time. And that is, we, there are persons in trucks, right? Persons in trucks, nations in trucks, economies and trucks, corporations and trucks, speeding along their highways, you know, with single-minded, one purpose, make money for everyone in the truck, get to where we're going, get there as fast as we can get there, fast-track NAFTA, fast-track CAFTA, right? Speed along as fast as we can, and we're mowing down the pedestrians. The guy who's just trying to get from here to there with these things in his bags and make a buck, and we're mowing them down, and we're not bothering to stop. 
And I see that carnage all the time. So, part of it has to do with the way that we talk about each other. Uh, we, we live in closed societies, and we use the language of closed societies. So, we say illegal. We say um, illegal, com- illegal combatants, uh, savages, terrorists. And we use these words to depersonalize uh, human beings and individuals. Collateral damage. Collateral damage. Lovely. You know, some garbage on the highway. Right? So, but we, so, when we think about people coming to the, uh, we not, we, we, first of all, it's the language that we're, that we're using, and, and we're going along unconsciously. We're an unconscious civilization in a sense, in the words of John Rolfe Saul. Um, and so we're not thinking about why, you know, why are these people coming here? Why is that man walking the seven days from the border? Why was he even there in the first place? Uh, we're just barreling along in our trucks trying to get from point A to point B quick as we can. So I want to talk a little bit about that man and why he crossed the border why he walked those seven days, why he was where he was when that truck mowed him down. Um, when I went to Mexico, uh, very soon after I'd arrived in a market, in a marketplace, uh, you know, a traditional marketplace, you've seen it all, you know, if you've been a tourist, you've been there, you've seen it. Um, you, uh, uh, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. In a marketplace, and uh, I'm looking at the veg, you know, fruit and vegetables, and the uh, in the heart of Mexico, crossroads of Mexico, Mexico City, right there, bam, crossroads of, of an ancient empire, and you know, and what Mexico given to the world, avocados, potatoes, you know, most of the fruits and vegetables that that you eat um, that come from these indigenous societies, one like in Mexico. And in and, and I looked, and the, the oranges and the avocados in the market had stickers on them that said "Produce of California." And the avocado, there are avocados being grown, you know, just on the outskirts of the city. And I'm in this market, and the stuff that I'm about to pay for, uh, the money is going somewhere way to the north. And uh, so, I, you know, I, that, that stuck with me, too. What, what the hell am I doing in Mexico buying an orange from California or an avocado from California? Um, so, if you look at this uh, story that, uh, I guess, can I just hit back up on this thing or do I need to? Doesn't work. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. Not only I'm not an academic, I'm I'm a technophobe too. Yeah. Uh, what I want to uh, what I want to bring up is the uh, the magazine story I wrote on uh, migration.
By the way, I, that's the one. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, by the way, uh, I read Tony's, a little bit of Tony's uh, definition of globalization, uh, in which it points out that globalization began in 1492. And I'm going to disagree. I think that globalization started in the year 390, when the, uh, when the Goths were pushed out, the, you know, the, the, the known Western world. That's a kind of first stage, a dress rehearsal. Let's say it wasn't the beginning of globalization, but a dress rehearsal for globalization was the Roman Empire. And uh, in, um, you know, common language, all roads to Rome, you know, uh, this massive economy, by that time a single religion and, uh, and a single dream, right? The dream to be a Roman, a Roman citizen. And, uh, and then, you know, in the year 390, suddenly these hordes of people are like pouring over the Danube, these Goths, who you know, nobody knows where they're coming from and so forth, and they're causing all kinds of, you know, turmoil in the empire and so forth. What nobody was thinking about at the time is, why are the Goths coming? They're just saying, well, what are we going to do with these Goths who've arrived? What they, they weren't thinking about ended up biting them on the ass in about 450 AD when uh, the Huns came along. They were the ones who were pushing the Goths all along. Well, um, what is it, in a sense, that's pushing... The, the, these migrants uh, from the south to the north. There's always been in, in, the, in, in the U.S. and Mexico, like Tony was saying, it, it really, a large part of the United States is Mexico. There's always been this kind of flowing back and forth because a lot of these people don't recognize the borders. They've always, you know, for generations, for, for centuries, they've, they've moved back and forth uh, across what, you know, we call a border. Uh, and, um, and so... Uh, Sorry, I kind of lost track of it. Um, globalization. Yeah, thanks. We're in a globalization class. Appreciate that. Um, but there, there was, a, a, there was a, a, um, a famous study done back in the late 70s on migration to the States. And it was a story of a farmer uh, who, who went to the States because uh, his ox was stolen in his community, and he had no way of replacing this. The only thing he could think of doing was going, was going up to the state. And I thought that was pretty interesting because, in a sense, what we've done, what we're doing with, the, with, with these, our seeding trucks here, uh, creating uh, these trade accords without including uh, humani humanizing factors, labor accords, environmental accords, etc. Uh, but in a sense, what we're doing is we're stealing oxen. Uh, we're taking away land from people uh, in Mexico through the constitutional changes that were done for the NAFTA, etc. But a lot of these people are also coming from, uh, a lot of them are coming from other places than, than Mexico. In, uh, in between, uh, 19, uh, between 1960 and 1977, the numbers of people coming from Mexico to the United States went from about 100,000 to just under a million per year. Uh, then it was kind of stabilized, uh, up and down a little bit. And then right around the beginning of the 1990s, there was an explosion of migration to the United States. Uh, in, in, that, in that period of time, these, these are the official figures, the ones that the officials will agree to. Oh, oh where are the... Um, up higher. I have a graph here. There it is. 
These are uh, just a look at figures of migration globally. Uh, and you'll see that in, in Asia, uh, what's the numbers here? What, yeah, I mean, pretty much stable. Uh, Australia is 22% jump. This is between 1990 and the year 2000. Uh, in Africa, the transmigration, meaning, you know, between different countries, uh, you know, pretty much a zero. Europe had a, had a bit of a bump. Uh, in North America, 48%. Uh, that, 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 that was the percentage increase over that same period of time. Uh, and compared globally, it's a massive, uh, it's a massive change. In reality, that's probably closer to 96%. Uh, and that I have from, uh, officials from the Department of Homeland Security in the United States. When I was working on a story for the Red Cross, working along the border, uh, um, I, and getting to know a lot of the players on both sides of the border, uh, one of the uh, uh, officers, uh, not officers, but one of the managers there, off the record told me, the figures that you have, official figures, are half the real numbers. So uh, we're looking at, there are 3 million apprehensions of migrants crossing, crossing the border every year. I mean, 3 million arrests of some sort that are made. Um, and it's only a fraction of the actual people who are crossing crossing the border into the United States to work. Um, the number that's given by the United States uh, government for numbers of people living and working illegally in, in the United States, what they call illegally, um, is uh, about 10 million. Uh, the number that the, the officers will give you off the record is over 20 million. Uh, which represents close to 10% of the population, or hovering under 10% of the population of the United States. Uh, and that is, that is a, you know, 7 to 10% of the population that has zero vo voice, no rights, and are uh, almost to a, to, to a person uh, um, used, exploited in, in, in some fashion. I have to back up something about this, this term illegal aliens or illegal workers. Uh, it's one that I don't, uh, I know we use it because it, you know, it, it in a very quickly tells us what we're talking about, but there's something about that using that language um, that kind of, you know, it, it, um, it kind of gives half the battle away already. Uh, you know, any law that prevents someone who traditionally was able to move across this land and live off of it and in a sense was a, a kind of guardian of North America, any law that says, now, we who have come have decided that you can't do that anymore, and we'll, we will actually prevent you from living. We'll prevent you from making a living, earning bread, um, just to survive, you and your family. A law that does that is now, uh, in some sense, uh, is an illegal law. Uh, you know, it, it goes against, uh, it goes against the universal, the ideas of universal human rights. Uh, and so to say, uh, you know, to, to say that somebody's an illegal immigrant um, is, is, in a sense, ignoring that other bigger part of the, of the picture. So um, back to the stolen oxes, uh, stolen oxen. Uh, there's something else that I learned in, in traveling along the U.S.-Mexico border and interviewing and living with people who were trying to get the border, people who were trying to help them, people who were trying to keep them out. I was with Border Patrol. Uh, I was with, you know, nuns and, and, and laypersons working on the Mexican side of the border trying to, you know, get some kind of human 
dignity give, give to these people who are there on the border getting ready to cross over and make these seven to ten day walks through, through desert and risk their lives to get into the United States. So, uh, in doing that, I, uh, I, I was one night I went with the, this, uh, this migrant to, uh, a church hall upstairs in someplace above a church and where they were going to eat and the, one of the nuns outside grabbed me. She wanted to talk to me. Um, she knew the, the story I was talking about and she said, you, 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 your countries are creating this problem. And, you know, and I already had, you know, ideas about, you know, market forces and, you know, what happened when I saw the oranges and the avocados there, the land being taken back from the peasants, you know, the NAFTA and these things. I already knew a lot of these things that, you know, you can actually learn in a class. Um, she said, you're creating this by creating false dreams. You're importing a culture of false dreams to these people. And so she was saying, you know, and people are watching television and they're seeing this model of this is the way life is supposed to be. I'm supposed to have a television set. I'm, you know, I'm supposed to have a color TV and you know, a two-car garage. I'm supposed to have all of these things. And 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 your culture is creating these expectations uh, that. No long, you know, no longer is it, is your culture good enough, what you have here good enough. Um, you're inferior and you won't be a man unless you can do this, you know, something like this for your wife. And it's not the whole picture. It's only a very small part of it. But I thought that was interesting that, that, you know, that, that, that our, our culture, just our movies, we do it to ourselves too. Not, you know, not just that, not just that way. And it's interesting, uh, I think there are more Mexicans watching Canadian programs than there are Canadians watching some, some Canadian programs. I saw more episodes of, uh, what is it, Due South and North of 60. I've never watched those in Canada. And I watched tons of episodes when I was in, uh, when I was in Mexico. Cause they, cause our television shows, even Canadian shows, are exported to, uh, to poor countries. Uh, where we can sell them, you know, make a few bucks on them, and it's cheaper for them to buy that programming than to make some of their own programming. North of 50 is made in Bright Creek, which is outside of Calgary. Okay. <laughs> well, I never would have seen it if I hadn't gone to Mexico. <laughs> um, and so, I, I have had other experiences. I think that, you know, the best that I can do, because I'm not an expert on migration, I've only, you know, it's only one of the areas that I've worked on for a short time in the Red Cross. I've done a lot of other kinds of jobs and work. It's one that, that, that to me is close to my heart, and that's why I wanted to bring it up and get you thinking about it. Because I don't have a lot of answers for you. Um, I do have something I want to talk about, if I still have time, about how how I think, uh, what, you know, what can you do? You know, that Kevin Costner pointing at the camera and saying, what are you going to do about it? I do have a few ideas about that. Um, but, um, so I don't have much more to give you in terms of, uh, you know, migration, unless you want to ask some, some questions I might be able to answer at the, at the end of this. And, you know, it'd just be a pot shot, because I'm not sure if I'd be able to answer it. But, um, you know, I have run into other areas on the planet as, uh, working for the Red Cross, where I witnessed uh, situations that were much worse than 
Well, you know, I can't say much worse. Somebody who's, who's dying of, of thirst in the southwest United States because he's walking up, uh, you know, across the border and trying to get himself some, uh, a job, that's a disaster, right? That, that person going through that. But what I'm saying is that, you know, places where this is happening to a lot of people and, and, and they're facing even greater obstacles. Um, I can't tell you about them. I can't say much about them because I, as a Red Cross employee, I'm not allowed to. We have to be neutral and go into areas where you, you're, you can't take a stance on one side or the other. Your job is to try to protect human dignity within that context, get both sides to try to um, agree on, on, on certain standards of, of human dignity. Um, but I want to talk about uh, um, something called personalism. Have any of you ever heard the term personalism? There's a big reason why you probably should have. Although, you know, I'm not surprised that you don't know that name. Um, Pierre, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was, uh, uh, he was early in life, fast. And this has come out in a book that was uh, just published in English a few months ago called The Young Trudeau. And uh, two writers from Cité Libre, they uh, were given access by Trudeau before he died to all of his papers from he was five years old right through life. He wrote notes on every single book that he ever read. And he wrote copious notes on them. What he thought about what he was reading and, and, and cross-referenced things, shared books with friends and wrote notes on what they said about books. And so there are, there are reams and reams and reams of papers on Trudeau's thinking and what books he was writing, uh, reading and so forth. Um, he was, but early in life, this book uh, uh, brings evidence out that not only was Trudeau a fascist, uh, but he was, uh, he was uh, part of a, a revolutionary group uh, that was sympathetic with, with uh, Vichy France and Mussolini's uh, Italy, and to a certain extent to the, the Nazis in, 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 in Germany. And while the war was going on, uh, this small group, uh, which was sympathetic with the, with the fascists, was planning to bring a fascist state, uh, a fascist separate state of, of Quebec they call it Laurentia. And does class end at 8 or 7.30? I, I would think if we could even finish a little before 8, but okay. I, I, I'm, I'm feeling um, that... Would, take how much more time do I have? Okay, I'm okay. Really good. I think we're all enjoying this. Okay. Really okay. good. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Well, anyway, so they were planning to uh, they they were planning to uh, to overthrow uh, or to to, to to save the coup d'état actually uh, and to take uh, Quebec by force out of the Confederation uh, and create a Catholic corporatist. Um, you know, which would reinforce family values, uh, which would do away with the conflict between labor and capital and rather treat, you know, have a government that was run by you know, corporate entities. Um, in, in Alberta, we call it, what do we call it? Um, shareholders. That's how the Alberta government labels it. Um, where rather than having citizens participate in decision making, you just pick you know, someone who represents workers and someone who represents environmentalists and then five or six oil company representatives and then you come to an agreement on policy. That's the way the Alberta government runs. 
I don't know if you know that, but that, that is how it forms most of its, its policies and considers that a kind of democracy. It's not. It's modeled on, on Hitler and Mussolini's fast, uh, corporatist style of, of government. So, um, uh, anyway, so Trudeau was planning uh, this uh, corporatist uh, uh, revolution in, in like to, in, and to set up a VC kind of state uh, in, in Laurentia, and, uh, which would be French and Catholic and corporatist. Uh, then he, uh, he, but he, but he read widely. Uh, he, he was intellectually curious. And he, in, in some of the reading, he got permission to read some of the banned books because the Quebec clergy was allowed to, or they, they, they had a list of books that you weren't allowed to read. You know, if you were, you know, a student, you weren't allowed to read these books. You had to ask for permission from, from uh, the clergy to be allowed to read one, uh, you know, one of these books off the list. So he started out, you know, reading a little bit on humanism, getting permission to read certain books for scientific purposes or whatever. And he started broadening uh, his, his mind a bit. And it wasn't until about the end of the war when he happened on the writings of French, uh, a French philosopher who was fighting with words. He was fighting the fascists in France. And there were, there were thinkers uh, and students uh, in, in, in France who were opposed to the, the Nazi regime and the Vichy regime. Uh, and they were looking for a philosophy that was appropriate for the times, a way of approaching the world that wasn't this mentality of, of a, a being part of some corporation uh, in order to have power, uh, you know, a, a society that's run by these corporate entities. Uh, they were looking for a response to fascism. And, uh, and the thinking that they, they kind of uh, crystallized around was something called personalism. And the idea is that there is only one value, uh, there, there is only one thing, of one, there is only one unit of value uh, on, in our world. And that is a person. Uh, a corporation has no value. It's not self-conscious. It doesn't know, a, a corporation doesn't know that the universe exists. The universe doesn't know it exists. Uh, the, the known universe, the universe that we know, doesn't know it exists. The only, the only entity that is aware of its existence is a, is a person. And a person, the, the only unit of value is a person. And, and, you, and you move forward from that. Everything that is done by a government must be done with the person in mind. But I'm not talking about individualism. Individualism is a kind of a closed society. It's another corporation. An individual is another corporation. A person is something that's open beyond itself. It's part of a larger whole. It's part of other persons. A person is something that... It is, it, a person only reaches his, his or her full personality when others around him or her are reaching their full uh, potential as persons. And so socialism, capitalism, the other isms must be put to the service of the person. Now, the, the Trudeau got turned on to this philosophy of personalism uh, the, 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 I guess the, the, the top dude was a guy named Emmanuel Mounier. M-O-U, 
N-I-E-R. And if, you, if just one of you in this class one day ends up reading a book by Emmanuel Mounier, then I've done my job today. You just write it out okay. on the document camera. Well, I'm, I'm afraid of spelling it wrong. What do I look? Watch up there. Okay. You can, you can just, uh, Boy, I'm blowing it. Yeah. Person. Is that the title of the book? No, that's the author. There. Uh, he's written book uh, a number of, of books uh, on personalism. Uh, use your like use like a blackboard. Just use it like a blackboard. Okay. Just write on paper. Uh, one is called a personalist. Paper. Oh, Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> and then zoom in and out, you know, adjust it. Okay. It's a very powerful instrument. It's looking great from this end. I can read it twice. Okay, thanks. Read this book. And here's, an, here's one good reason to read that book. Um, Canada, the new, the new Canada, for all of its faults, uh, the Canada that was brought to you when we repatriated our Constitution in 1982, is secretly uh, is a setting up of the planet's first personalist country. Uh, and it follows... A, a set of guidelines set up by the philosophy of personalism. The, the Canadian uh, Charter is basically that, in, 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 in words, is much of that philosophy put into you know, a, a kind of legal, legal structure. Um, the, uh, and so, our, our country, this country, I say our, this, this country is one of the first, if not the first, uh, country to set itself up as a as a personalist country, um, but the idea of personalism says that we are uh, we are we are more than citizens locked into a border. That a personalist citizen uh, has to be something bigger than herself, uh, and that means being a global citizen. Uh, a person. Personalism is, in my opinion, uh, an important uh, philosophy to look at now when we are facing, in some sense, the same forces of fascism that we faced in, 19, in the late 1930s. A lot of the same thinking, a lot of the people who got beat in the 1930s uh, have, over, the, uh, over the, 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 the ensuing decades, have been clawing back. Uh, you know, the same forces that have, have been behind the neoliberal movement were behind the fascist movement in the United States uh, before the, the Second World War. And so what we're dealing with, in some sense, is, is are those fascists. 
this philosophy uh, was created in that time. That's answer that that persons, that humans had to what was what was what was going on, and that was a reevaluation of your society, not in terms of money or what's going to you know make things more efficient, but rather what is going to bring the greatest, what is going to help each person as an individual, as a person, not an individual, develop to his, his maximum potential, and a government exists to serve those needs. And that's what the charter is about, is saying that, that, that there are certain laws that the government must obey in order to respect the right of a person to, to, to develop him or herself. But, but you are not developing yourself as a person if you are not also lifting others with you. The personal, personalism uh, as a philosophy, I, I apply to my work. If I can personalize, if I can personalize things and show you that this is what's happening to another person, you're more likely to get it and to act on it because it's something that's in us. It's when we talk in the world in isms and numbers and so forth and blocks and corporate entities and, and so forth that we lose, when we lose sight of that, uh, then we have become, we have let the fascists in ourselves uh, win, in a sense. Norman Bethune, do you know him? A Canadian hero. A doctor from Montreal. Uh, he went to China. In China, he's, he's a revered uh, man. Uh, and although even the Chinese are beginning to forget about him, there's a statue of him in Montreal next to Peel Metro. And uh, a lot of people don't know you, but this, this man, a doctor, went to China during the revolution and saved countless lives and set up hospitals and taught people. And yet he even found in himself, uh, the, he found the fascist in himself, in his work. I found the fascist in myself when I was working in Indonesia, when I became completely burnt out and literally wanted people to step in front of my vehicle so I could run them down. Um, and I'm part of, uh, uh, no, I'm serious. You know, burn, that's what happens in, in, in classic burnout, you know. And uh, I should have been gone, you know, a long time before then. But in a sense, I became the guy that was in that truck who ran over the migrants, right? And I'm, and I'm working for the Red Cross. I mean, you know, how wishy, you know, bleeding heart can you get, right? But it's not the institution. Sorry, go ahead. I'm from China. I just want to say, from my point of view, we never forget that guy, oh. and who helped us a lot. And also, like um, when I was in elementary school, I know we had a, an article that talks about that story. So, and I also know right now a lot of people still talk about uh, that doctor, but uh, mm, because our values are changing. You know, yeah. and like, yeah. when we look at that story, we kind of like review about a, a really close relationship, a really, you know, generous help from uh, other countries. Right. Really appreciate it. Wow. Thanks. I'm glad you're here to say that. Um, thanks very much. Yeah, and that actually... Rem reminds me of got off track again. But Norman Bethune said, 
when he uh, found himself personal in interpersonal relationships, found himself acting like the fascist. That's the one that you know want to barge through, get things done because the end result is what matters, not the people, not the person. And he started acting that way in his own work. Uh, and he and he said, "How can I fight the fascist if I haven't beat the fascist in myself?" And so, what I uh, want to make sure I haven't missed anything. I just uh, want to uh, make an observation on uh, those who have this view. Uh, Martin Luther King's uh, book about the uh, boycott of the buses in uh, Birmingham. Um, he he has some very eloquent uh, critiques of communist ideology, which he says you know has this view of the end, the individual being a means to an end. Right. And he speaks with great eloquence and insight about there is no other entity that we know of other than the exactly. the individual, not the individual, the person. The person. The person. We don't know of any collective consciousness. Yeah. This nation or that nation have a collective consciousness. It's, it's the person, and he puts it in religious terms. It's the, the person is an expression of the creator. Right, right. It, it's the divine. The person is an expression of the divine. Right. And uh, I just thought I'd brought, brought that, bring that in. That's perfect. Yeah, that was what I was trying to, I was trying to say. Um, that, uh, that, that 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 the government uh, system is at the service of the person, and that means you you and your neighbor, and you know, and the person living on the reserve, and you know, and the, and the guy living on the street. That so long as that person living on the street is suffering, you are not a full you, you are not a full person. You're not living to, to your full person shit. Um, and and also in this idea is. The difference between closed societies and open societies. Uh, a closed society, uh, you know, is you know, guild. It's, it's a corporation where, uh, you know, we as a corporation will do everything necessary so that everyone here in the corporation in this closed society benefits. That means profit at all times at whatever cost, without thinking about, you know, whoever's outside of that corporation or that nation or that system. Uh, but those are artificial. Uh, those are artificial things. The only thing that is real is is the person. Uh, and so, personalists in the 1940s felt that the best structure or system we have that will help the flowering of each person on this planet is democratic socialism. But only so long as democratic socialism will will get us to that to that end. When it breaks down, when it's not working, when something else better comes along, then you know we should try that. And the personalist is not hung up on any kind of ism or technology. It's 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 constantly reevaluating, constantly reevaluating yourself, your country, your 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 community, your 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 planet, and how you are behaving in that. Um, you know, I was saying about the Red Cross that I, you know, in the Red Cross was beginning to feel and act like a like a fascist. Uh, and and the the organization itself is only as good as the people that are in it. Uh, it, it's, it's only as full as the persons that are in it. Um, and and it, in a sense, it was the first organization that was created as a personalist organization. The guy who, who founded it was, was riding a buggy through a, a battlefield and all of these casualties everywhere. And what he, what, what he tried to say was, these are persons, right? 
you call him an enemy, you call him a, an illegal combatant, a terrorist, or whatever, it's not, it's a person. And once that person is no danger to you, once he's wounded, or once he's surrendered, then he's, he's the same, he's your brother. And, and you need to afford him the same, the same rights that, that you would expect for yourself. That kind of golden rule. And so he created an organization that was, that was personalized. It personalized everything. And that's basically all the Red Cross does. It, it tries to constantly renew that spirit of personalism that, you know, you've taken this person captive. Okay, now he's not a danger to you. Uh, now you need to treat him as you would hope to be treated if you were in his position. And we try to, you know, to, uh, to vigilate that and, and reinforce that and teach that to soldiers, teach that to governments and to persons, etc. But um, what, what I wanted to get to is uh, that so there's this idea of closed society. Oh, we're Canadian. So whatever's going to be good for Canada, right? They're, my, they're, they're aliens, right? We don't know where they're from, but they're aliens. They're outside. Alien being outside of our society. We, in the States, I'm a, I'm a resident alien. I have a resident alien card, right? I hate that term. I hate it. Because it makes me not a person. And an illegal alien, you know, is someone from outside. A personalist is someone who belongs to and believes in open society. Now you have globalization, right? Where capital believes in open society, right? Hey, we'll go where we want, do what we want, right? We've got to make this world free for us to do whatever we want, right? But we haven't caught up, you know, in terms of uh, in thinking about human beings, in thinking about workers and the environment. We haven't caught up. You know, it, 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 why can capital move here and there? We're treating capital as a better person than, than we're treating ourselves. You know, as something with more privileges. A corporation, a corporation, the Americans, I don't know what the deal is in Canada, but the Americans have personalized, by personalized corporations. They have the rights of a person. It's, it's, it's absurd because it's not something that's conscious or thinking or has morals. And yet it, it is treated with those and more rights than that. So the only thing that I can give to you, because I'm not an academic, because I don't know, I don't know as much as, as you all do about globalization. I'm nearly there, as I say, on the front lines, viewing the carnage and trying to put band-aids on it, basically. But the, what I want to bring to you, if I can bring anything to you, is that when you're here, you're not here to get a job. You're not you're not going to university so that you can outcompete the next guy and get you know such and such a job. That may be part of what you want to do in your life. But what you're here for is to develop yourself as a person. And that means not just you. Because if it's just about you, now you are an individual. You're not a person. Now you're another closed society. A closed society of one. Right? No different than whatever corporation you detest or whatever government you detest. If you act as an individual, you're no different than them. You, you have to be in yourself an open society. And part of an open society. Like, like a clay jug floating in the ocean full of water. And that's what you're here for. Oh, no. Now comes Dr. Spooner's turn here. No, I don't have a lot to add. I think uh, you did a brilliant job, and I quite enjoyed your presentation. I very much agree that uh, the students that are sitting before you ought to consider what they're doing at university and, and to use this time to learn ideas, to learn from people like you, to learn from each other, uh, and to really reflect upon your place in the world and what you want to accomplish with your life. And I think that 
you're uh, giving up so much, if you're just using your university education to get a job, that might be an interesting byproduct. But that you have a wonderful opportunity to think about these issues and uh, to do so. And I have nothing to add other than I quite enjoyed the, the presentation very much. Thanks very much. I forgot to say something. That, that, that I was going to brag about myself. Um, what, what, I, what I mean by this, uh, you know, becoming, you know, that person, being that's your goal here. And, it, and, and, and as Martin Luther King said, you know, if you're going to be a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper that you can. In that idea of being the fullest person that you can, giving it your all. So, uh, but so yeah, I, I was telling you when I left here, I was idealistic. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to help change the world. Then I got into journalism and it was like, holy crap, this is f up. You know, I mean, basically, I'm working for an advertising bureau. You know, I'm working for the companies that are that are paying, you know, that, that are, uh, you know, they're buying the advertising in the company. I'm not allowed to say this. I'm not allowed to say that. And I got, you know, very quickly in journalism, I just got, you know, totally turned off by it. And it's like, you know, I, I'm not going to make any kind of a difference in this. And, uh, but I still carried, you know, as a person, you know, I still carried with me these the things, other things close to my heart. And I kept going in my life. I started a business. I became a capitalist. I, uh, you know, I, I, I did a house painter, you know, a beekeeper. I did all of these different things and always trying to carry within myself that idea of, of trying to be, you know, a full person. But feeling like, you know, as a journalist, eh, you know, what, what can I do? I, I kind of accidentally happened, you know, backed into, a, uh, into the Red Cross. And when I was in there, I said, uh, I convinced the International Red Cross uh, there, there is a, a, a single editing body that is, a, a, is uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Federation of the Red Cross. Uh, they, they, uh, are, they have one publication uh, together. They, they, the ICRC, the International Committee, deals with war, and the Federation deals basically with disasters and, and, and that, that sort of thing. Um, and, but the two of them together have this magazine. It's Red Cross, Red Crescent Magazine. Uh, which got two, is there three, oh, sorry. Three to four issues. Uh, now, what do I push here? Somebody else. No, I screwed it up. That was the okay. So, international. This is the, uh, the magazine of the Red Cross and Red Crescent. www.redcross.int. This magazine goes out to every country in the world. Uh, it, um, uh, the Red Cross has millions of members uh, in, in, in China. Uh, Hong Kong has its own society, the Red Cross. Uh, and, and just uh, two weeks ago, uh, the last country that had, did not have a national society uh, now has. And so it's, it's truly the first completely global organization. Uh, and this magazine goes out to, to every one of those countries through Red Cross branches. I convinced the Red Cross in the organization, in my day-to-day -day life, I convinced one of the editors to let me do a story on a very touchy subject. Um, I convinced them to let me go down to the, to the border, U.S.-Mexico border, and to do a story about migration, but not a story about migration. Let me go do a story about a person. One person. And it was touchy because the American Red Cross, to that point in all of its history, did not have a migration policy. 
They did not deal with migrants. The only dealings that they had with migrants was training border guards in first aid. That was it. That's where they drew the line, was training in first aid. But the, the, the feeling or the, within the organization, first of all, it's tied fairly closely to U.S. government, but also within it feeling like they're criminals. Migrants are criminals. Right? And so we don't deal with them. We deal with prisoners of war. We deal with victims of, of you know, disasters, etc. But we don't help criminals. 60,000 of those, of those 3 million people plus that cross the border every year are children. Often they're, they're, they're unattended. They're alone. They're riding on trains. They're walking. They're dying to get to the north to, to make a, you know, to try to live. And they have been labeled, even within an NGO like the Red Cross, as criminals. And so we can't help them. And so I said, let me do this story about one person. And so I went there with a photographer, and I traveled for weeks along the border, and like I said, on both sides. And I wrote this cover story, and the American Red Cross fought it. They didn't want it published. Um, but I convinced the American Red Cross, I convinced them to read the story. And they said, even though it makes it look, us look bad, we want it published. Certain people in the American Red Cross, not all of them, but a certain key people in there said, go ahead. Right? Gave it the go ahead. Because the American Red Cross, to that point, didn't do anything. Didn't have a policy, didn't discuss migration whatsoever. It was just that kind of, you know, the, the, you know, the cousin in the attic or, or whatever. Um, and I don't say anything in here much about the American Red Cross uh, because they don't do anything. But it's rather it's rather obvious to everyone in the Red Cross community that if he's not saying anything about what the American Red Cross does, it's because they don't do anything. And there is a quote in there from the American one of the American Red Cross volunteers that's quite damning, just of of policy in general, American uh, just this, the migrant situation. But this article raised a furor within the Red Cross movement between the American Red Cross and Geneva. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of bad blood because certain people higher up in the, in the American Red Cross didn't like it, that it came out. It doesn't talk about them. That's the thing. Read this story if you can. It doesn't talk about Red Cross. All it talks about, all it does, is tell the story of one person, just a farm, a, a carpenter from Honduras who walked, rode trains, went through hell, to get to the border. It's not about him crossing the border. It's just, what did it take for this guy to get to the border? It wasn't even talking about the United States, really. It was telling the story of one guy, and it rose a fewer, but I'll, I'll just finish this. And just wondering if you could open up to the article. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's the cover. Uh, it's, on, it's, on the, it's on that website. If you'll go to the website, there's a link that I provided Tony. That's the easiest thing, if you can, if you can get it from him. Otherwise, you kind of have to navigate through the website. It's in the archives. 2004, second edition of 2004. There were three editions that year. But here's the happy ending for the story. So there was a stink phrase, this is never going to happen again, you know, and all this, fewer, etc. The American Red Cross in 2005, in 2000, no, sorry, in, two, in, in late 2004, a couple of months after I wrote this article, they did a review, branch by branch, along all along the U.S.-Mexico border, of what are we doing about migrants? What is your policy as a branch? Because to then it was left kind of, you know, it, it was, uh, how do you say, decentralized, you know, left up to the branches. And they decided we need to have a some kind of a national policy on how we as an organization deal with migrants. 
I went to Indonesia right after that, and I don't even know how far that's gone, but at least the discussion was raised. And, and, and I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody, right? Until the week before I did the, wrote the article, I was, I was teaching in South Texas and cutting brush, right? It's just wherever you are in your life, you don't know where you're going to end up. You might be cutting brush one day and being the best brush cutter that you can. And the next day, I got a chance, you know, through the organization to write this story. And I don't know, maybe it might help one or two or thousands of people. I also want to say that that this article has received more mail globally uh, than anything else that's been printed in Red Cross, Red Crescent Magazine in decades. There are people who write, who see this in every country in the world who write and say, I'm a migrant, or, you know, or I'm worried about my sister, or I'm working with migrants, etc. So globally, there's been a response to this article, and it's just from one guy who stopped when there was a migrant hit in the middle of the road one day, and I carried that with me, and and I'm just in, want to encourage you that to to as I said, develop yourselves here as persons with that idea of being bigger than yourself, and you don't know where it'll end up. You never know. That's it. Sorry, any questions? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna. How do you feel about uh, the, the Texans and, that have been building walls to keep Mexicans out of, of Texas? And that, that's something uh, that I actually um, was hoping, just in my being here, bringing this up to get some of you thinking about, more about, in terms of you know, globalization and borders. It's another closed society, right? I mean, that's a very concrete example of a closed society. And yet, those same people who are building that wall... I guarantee you, they've been to Mexico many times, you know, to, to live it up on the beaches, you know, to go out with a, a hooker, whatever, you know, to have a good time, or, you know, or, to, you know, or perfectly legitimate vacations. They don't, they don't, it doesn't connect with them that somebody in Mexico who works as hard as I do will never be allowed legally to come to my country and go to Disneyland, right? It's because they, they themselves have become closed societies, not thinking of, the person on the other side, the other person. And so, yeah, I mean, the building of the wall, you know, it's, when, when we're, when we're sending businessmen like myself there, you know, who can come and go as they please, and yet the workers themselves were trapping there, you know, in a sense, on plantations. Uh, it's something to, to think about, and, and it's not something to be answered just here. I'm, I'm hoping I'm just raising some questions for you. You know, look behind the, the you know, the look behind the goths. What's pushing the goths into Rome? I've talked too much. I always do that. No, no, <laughs> just, just sit there. Um, what? Okay, here I go. It just makes me proud to uh, be part of this school, to meet and have this lengthy encounter with uh, you, Virgil. It makes me proud to be part of the University of Lethbridge because you're a graduate of the University of Lethbridge. And uh, I do remember you. I don't, I think we had some kind of encounter, but it's basically your face. I'm bad one. I remember uh, seeing you as a, as a 20-year-old, and, and uh, it is really fascinating in this line of work to see what people do when they leave these institutions. And I think I can say with some degree of certainty that we have a pretty good contact now at this school 
in this room with this technology with a little organization called the Red Cross. I think we have a pretty good liaison with the Red Cross, and something tells me that the next time we're talking to you, you won't be in this room. You'll be on that screen in what, who knows what part of the world. And I'll tell you, man, we can publish. We're publishing right now globally. There might be three people out there. There might be five people out there. But the, the prototype is here. We're publishing right now globally, and the document that we've just created is forever. So when you think about your job as a media spin doctor, as a psychological warfare expert trying to carve out your turf, think of what we're trying to do here, and maybe we can be some help. And this, after all, you know, we're not beholden to Time Warner. We're not beholden to um, CNN or Nabisco or General Electric. This is the academy. This is the high end of the feeding chain when it comes to the place in our society where we really are, in our highest ideals, dedicated to nothing else but encouraging persons to seek the truth. Although we also have to stay vigilant on that, hey, Tony, we're becoming increasingly commercialized, which compromises our ability to do just that. But what we're doing right here, right now, we're under, nobody is, nobody is pulling our strings. This is just human beings trying to understand one another, try to deal with the new technologies and try to relate as human beings across borders. Uh, there's a, a little, point I want to make, maybe it's not that little, but when you talk about the Red Cross now having publications in every country and thus being fully global, when you talked about and asked about what citizenships are in this room, and uh, there are many ways to think about citizenship. Now, I'm sorry if I'm centering somebody else, but I'm going to refer to Sandra Lamouche in the, in the back row. As far as I'm concerned, she's a Cree citizen, and there is nothing lesser about being a citizen of Cree than a citizen of Canada, than a citizen of Uzbekistan. And as James uh, Shaw, who I expect pretty good things from, you know, he says that he, he says he's a, a citizen of New Zealand and a citizen of Canada. And I don't think that you're particularly conflicted by that. In fact, I think the fact that you can be citizens of both adds to the power of both your, your, your policies. And I don't see any reason why Sandra Lamouche cannot be a dual citizen of Cree Nation in Canada and shouldn't be put in a position where there's an idea that you have to choose and one has to be above the other. We're in Blackfoot country. Is, is the Red Cross Journal translated into Blackfoot yet? Is the Red Cross <laughs> Journal translated three, three into Cree yet? Do the Cree have some representation on, on the board, on the international body of the Red Cross? And wouldn't the Red Cross be exactly the kind of organization to say, look, there's 200 countries in the world, but there's 6,000 languages. And most of those policies are far older than the nation states. They're the oldest policies on earth. So uh, I, I'm going to go and 
check out the dudes with you. We were on the stage last night, Virgil and me. And uh, uh, <laughs> I wish I could be there. And anyway, it's it's just a huge pleasure to see to see you grow as a human being, to have some memory of you back all those years, and to be able to so quickly understand that we're sharing so many struggles and hopes and aspirations. And uh, you know, we're coming to an end with this. I'm tired. I'm tired, and I'm I'm just prone to uh, my emotions are just a little too close to. Uh, but you know, this it's personal. Well, it's personal. Like you know, nobody's writing this script, yeah. and you know, so we're a few people in this room. But you get flashes of this is where, where is the world going to be? How is it going to? How is the madness going to stop? How are we going to create the network, the people? who can talk about the real issues, because you can't do it in the commercial media. The commercial media is all its propaganda, it's spin doctoring this. You can't even have the discussion. You can't even raise the issue. So, there, there, what alternatives are there to doing this kind of thing? To, to, you know, to try to save our kids, to try to save not only the human beings, but the other species, the, what, what alternatives are there? What other forms can we do this? So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, summing up the, the term or the, the time together and with Frank, you know, it's not, it's, it's two sessions. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't want to put pressure to say let's make something of this, but, you know, I've been doing this three, four years and I just am so surprised how little uh, I see colleagues making use of this. The CRG, hey, hey. Come on now. Hey, hey, come on now. Some of your colleagues aren't in Lethbridge, but... Yeah, and then Dr. Spooner and uh, Evan Thornton, who I hope is out there with us right now in Ottawa. Uh, It would be, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to a round where I can do what Mark is doing. And somebody else is carrying the carrying the, the major weight of it and, and then I can kind of sit back and comment a little bit. Yeah. And you know, it's a pants thing, you know. I didn't know what it, what the class was going to be until like Monday and there you are and it's so obvious, eh? Uh, the administration of this university, I mean, you have a lot of clout as students. You, you, you're the people for whom this institution exists and, and if, if this type of Endeavor as this kind of use of, of of our resources here seems to make sense. You can point that out, and you can ask for more, and you can ask it for it to be applied in different ways, in different in different disciplines, and 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 so uh, we're, we're we're facing the future together. None of us know where this is headed, where our lives are headed, and thank you, Virgil, for for being here with us tonight. My name's Mark. Big brother here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been watching you. <laughs> what do you say we, if you feel like taking off, you can, we can just continue to, to sort of talk on, you know, using, using the technology or... I'm going to go. It was a pleasure. I, I don't really, I mean... Um,
Thanks very much uh, for, your, for your attention, making me feel comfortable here. Thanks for your, your questions too, especially the one about the wall. That's up for, for everyone to think about. The wall in the context of globalization, you know, like that. The people who are talking about globalization end up putting the wall. Read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, Personalize everything. Personalize everything. Hey, uh, you actually at the bottom of that article? Uh, oh yeah, if, uh, this fellow here is asking if I have an email address. At the bottom of the article, if, you, if uh, I don't know how you're going to access it through Tony. Um, I encourage you to read it if you get a chance, because it's actually a really good read. It's gripping, this guy's story. Um, I've had people, editors, tell me it, it reads like Hemingway. It's a good story. Um, and uh, But more importantly, if you can, read Mounier uh, on personalism. But anyway, at the bottom of, of my article, uh, there, m my email address is, is there. And I receive email, like I said, from people all over the world all the time at that address, and you're welcome to write me if you have a question on anything or you know, just whatever. Okay, I'll give it to you. <laughs> it's just my name, Virgil Grandfield. Which, which show? Uh, Virgil, P-I-R-G-I-L. You have to have tickets? G-R-A-N-D. No, no dot. No dot. Yeah. F-I-E-L-D.